Amen. So we've done it. We've made it to the final commandment. The tenth commandment stated succinctly, thou shall not covet. Now, it's the last commandment chronologically, and therefore the last to be treated, but we've been operating according to its logic, according to its teaching from the very beginning. The Tenth Commandment provides the rationale and the justification to reorient all the commandments inward. It's translated as our word covet, but in fact it's more general. It means something like to desire or to take pleasure in. And all the commandments have dealt with the heart implicitly, but the Tenth Commandment deals with the heart, namely its desires, explicitly. A crafty interpreter might have been able to understand the commandments as merely external, but the Tenth Commandment stops them. It reorients the commandments from directives about one's outward behavior to an altogether deeper level, the secret intents and thoughts of the heart. So in order to render the obedience that God desires, we must plunge into our tangled web of desires. We must go to the heart. So it's the Tenth Commandment, it's in the Tenth Commandment rather, that all the commandments come to their culmination. Now if you can remember back some two years ago to our first message in the series, we identified the three uses of the law. And the first one is to expose our sin and to condemn our sin. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3, through the law, that's the commandments, comes the knowledge of sin. So up to this point, we might have fancied ourselves a rich young ruler. I have kept all the commandments from my youth up, But in the Tenth Commandment, we can't come to that conclusion. With devastating accuracy, it cuts to the heart. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? The Apostle Paul asks. May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting the subject of our sermon today, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And and this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the commandment bids us not to covet, but it doesn't give what it commands. Instead, it provokes the very thing that it commands us not to do. The tenth commandment pinpoints our problem, namely, our desires, and then it aggravates that problem. I find then in the prohibition, thou shall not covet, 
that sin runs far deeper in me than I ever imagined. It's not merely something I do outwardly, but something that dwells within me. It takes me to a place I don't want to go to address the corruption that's embedded itself at the very core of my nature. And so we might describe that corruption as perverted and distorted desire. And not merely sexual desire, but desire more generally. When the commandments have done their work, that's the truth that we discover. Our hearts are twisted and deformed due to sin. And it's not that the heart becomes something else under sin, but that sin preys on the heart. It takes its good and divinely ordained desires and it exploits them, sin does. It uses them for its own purposes. And the commandment, it only exasperates that problem. As the Apostle says, sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. But the commandment, it doesn't leave us hopeless. It points out our sin, but it also points beyond our sin to our Redeemer and our Savior and our Rescuer, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. For what the law could not do, the Apostle goes on to say, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Listen, so that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So the commandment, do not covet, leads us into the deepest caverns of our heart, but always in grace. The law condemns us no longer. It and our sentence that it passed against us have been removed. It's now a guide a teacher in righteousness, or better, a tool utilized by the Spirit of God. And under the Spirit's reign, fleshly desires that have become perverted because of sin become spiritual desires. The root of corruption is plucked out and a righteous seed is planted in its place. And rather than bad fruit, the works of the flesh, good fruit comes to bear. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law, the apostle says. And so such has been the commandment's aim from the outset. It merely comes to its expression in the tenth commandment. The law is given to pinpoint the problem, to aggregate, aggravate the problem, but then ultimately to lead us to the one who can restore our hearts and renew our desires. So, it's necessary that we start with the commandment's particular prohibition, and that is coveting. As we've said, in the original language, it's more expansive than merely coveting. 
It means quite simply to desire or to take pleasure in. And so it is our desires, it's our passions, it's our inclinations, whatever you want to call them, that the commandment directs our attention toward. Therein lies our problem. And we'll come to disordered desire, um, the disordered desire that the commandment puts its finger on. But first, I want to consider what the commandment says about us as humans. Now, it teaches us something very basic about the kind of beings that we are, desiring beings. In other words, the Tenth Commandment takes up our desire as the root problem because desire is the root of our nature. It is our wants and our longings and our cravings that are at the very core of our identity. Now, I've demonstrated this biblically in the past. I don't want to spend too much time on it now. So, a simple observation from Jesus' words about the commandments will do. Obviously, he's questioned, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So as it pertains to the greatest commandments, our focus is usually upon the objective. To love God supremely and to love our neighbors as ourselves. But we often miss what's presupposed in the commandments. That love, before anything else, is central to our identity. We're not commanded to know or to believe the Lord, but rather to love Him. And likewise, we're not commanded to appreciate or to understand our neighbor, but to love him. If what needed changing were intellectual or belief-based, then the two greatest commandments would reflect that. But instead, their preoccupation is love. The aim of God's decree is not simply to deposit new ideas into our minds, or to even alter our convictions, but ultimately, it's after our love that our desires would be reclaimed from sin's influence and rightly ordered according to truth and righteousness. So the commandment teaches us that the heart precedes the mind, that desire precedes reason as more basic to who we are. And therefore, it teaches us that to be human is to be after something. To be human is to be after something. That is, desire's nature after all. To pursue, to be after something. So it's desire that moves us and propels us through life. In other words, the heart is not static or inert, It's hungry and uh, acquisitive. It's always moving forward, 
So quite simply, to be human is to be in motion. James Smith, the theologian, he puts it well. He says, to be human is to be for something, directed towards something, oriented towards something. To be human is to be on the move, pursuing something, after something. We are like existential sharks. We have to move to live. We're not just static containers for ideas. We are dynamic creatures directed toward some end. Now, another more theological way to put it, or as the theologians do, is to say that humans are teleological creatures. Now, that comes from the word telos, which means something like end or goal or ultimate aim. Humans are teleological creatures in that our desires are oriented toward a certain end. They are intentional and purposed. True, we hardly know what our desires are after, but our heart is always after something. In fact, Woody Allen, when questioned about his more than questionable relationship habits, responded this way, the heart wants what it wants. There is no logic to these things. You meet someone and you fall in love and that's it. So Alan justifies his behavior by appealing to the heart. It wants what it wants, he seems to say, and we must obey. Obviously, we disagree with him there. God, and not the heart, is ultimate. It's him whom we must obey. But his premise is basically right. It's the heart's desire that best explains human action. We think, yes, we have ideals, true, but above all, we want. The heart is always wanting and seeking, and we are always in its toe. So the truth about human desire is this. It is in relentless pursuit of that elusive something. You can describe the heart this way and say that it's part engine and it's part homing beacon. It points us at something and it propels us toward that something. And this in part explains why human desire is boundless in nature. In all its accumulation and all that it can gather to itself, it's never satisfied. Proverbs chapter 2720, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, nor are the eyes of man ever satisfied. A man can see all there is to see, consume and expend his desires on all that he can, and yet he's still not satisfied. It seems that the thing which our desire desires cannot be attained in this world. We're like Tantalus in the ancient Greek Greek myth. He did something, I'm not sure what, to offend the gods, and his punishment was to stand in a pool of water beneath a fruit tree. And whenever he reached for the fruit to satisfy his hunger, the branches raised the fruit from his grasp. And whenever he bent down to get a drink of water, the water receded before he could get any. In fact, it's poor old Tantalus from whom we get our word tantalize. To torment or to tease someone with the promise of something that is unattainable. Now our desire 
is very much like that. It thirsts and it hungers. It goes after our neighbor's goods. It goes after our neighbor's wife, his house, everything he has. And it still never finds what it's looking for. It's a series of never-ending, uninterrupted disappointments. And not obtaining what it seeks desires restless. And as a result, our lives are marked by ever greater amounts of accumulation. Pulling in more things and more people and whatever it is into its orbit in an attempt to satisfy its hunger. One theologian compares our situation to that of a beach ball. It wants to be floating atop the water because that's its natural and normal position. And when we push it beneath the water, it is relentless and anxious to get back to the top. It keeps sneaking up from beneath our hands and feet, bursting toward the surface where it can be at rest. And such is our desire. Submerged deep beneath the waters, it's ever seeking its way to the surface where it can be at rest. And yet painfully, we all know this, paradoxically and above all frustratingly, our desire cannot find the rest that it's looking for. It cannot get back to the surface where it can be in its normal state. It's always submerged, never finding its way to the top. As Augustine, a man plagued with this restlessness, once said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. And that leads us to our next observation about desire. In certain sinful manifestations, it's idolatry. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. The apostle says quite plainly, covetousness is idolatry. The goal of human desire is God. That's what it was made for. It's the one thing, more than any other thing, that leads us to God. Remember he said it's after something. That something is God. Our hearts are restless because they don't have what they were created for. So, because our desire is estranged from God, it makes gods of everything that it can. Desire, disconnected from God, is the root of idolatry. It cannot find its home and therefore... Our desire tries to set up its home in anything that it can. It's as if our desire were constantly asking, are you my home? And then sets up shop to find out. It's restless and it looks for rest in all the wrong places. And as such, it manufactures idols. Our desire does. It takes its hunger for God and it puts that on other things, be it inanimate objects such as wealth and glory and prestige or another person or whatever it may be. 
And as the scripture says, those who make idols, Psalm 110, will become like them. Those who make idols will become like them. And so if the maxim is true, you are what you desire, and I think it is, then it's clear how our desires twist and distort us. A man will be patterned after that which he loves, after his gods, that which he des- his desire settles upon. So, it would be mis- mistaken on account of this to imagine that desire itself is the problem. Right? It would be wrong to think that desire needs to be extinguished. In the biblical conception, human desire is not to be annihilated as maybe it is in certain Eastern religions where the whole goal is to silence desire. I mean, they're recognizing the same basic truth that the root, is at, the, the root of the problem is desire. Their solution is the wrong one to silence it. The biblical um, picture is quite opposite. It says that desire is good, that it is a necessary an inexpungible element of human nature, yet it's something that must mature. It doesn't need to be destroyed. It needs to mature. Under the tutelage of the Spirit, our desires are to rise from earthly and sensual delights to more heavenly and noble ones. So the commandment does intend that we stop coveting our neighbor and their goods, but more importantly, It seeks to transform and divinize our desire. Our aim is not to stop the flood. That's impossible. And it's truly a sad vision for life, trying to eliminate all desire. Rather, our aim is to harness that flood of desire and to point it toward its proper end. It's desire's very nature, remember, to flow. It's in motion, and there's no stopping that motion. There's no cutting it off. There's only pointing it toward the right thing. And what is it that our desires are supposed to be aimed at? Now, we've already answered the question. It's God. And to direct our desire toward its proper aim, it needs to be channeled. Now, imagine a stream pouring forth from a spring, and it divides into many channels. Now, as long as that stream is unharnessed, it's useless for the purpose of agriculture. It's useless for the purposes of life. The current dissipates into many different rivulets, many smaller currents, and it makes it weak and slow, and it spreads out, and it's lost. But... Suppose that that stream could be harnessed, maybe with a ditch or with a pipe or some other apparatus. Then, if that same desire could be harnessed, then it would supply everything that's needed for life. And human desire is much like that. Gregory of Nyssa, an old theologian, says, The human mind, so it seems to me, as long as its current spreads itself in all directions over the pleasures of the senses has no power that is worth naming of making its way toward the real good. So in other words, what he's saying is that our desire, unharnessed, 
dissipates into various streams. And it doesn't have the strength to rise up toward God. It's exhausted upon earthly things. And they don't even have to be sinful things. But it's spread out too widely. And so there's only but a very little bit that remains for heavenly things. So it's not that our desire lacks strength. It's not that it's weak. It's that it lacks direction. It lacks discipline and order. And how true that is. Moses, in his last words to the children of Israel before they were going to enter the promised land, he made this point over and over again. If you read Deuteronomy, you'll find it um, it just peaking here and there um, ever so quietly. Israel would inherit the promised land and all the good things contained therein, homes that they didn't build, uh, material abundance that they didn't work for, treasure beyond their imagination. And these were indeed a blessing. They were God's blessings to His people, but they could also become a snare. Moses told the people, Watch yourselves, that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Watch yourselves. In the wilderness, it was easy or easier to harness one's desire and to direct it toward God. And that's because these other rivulets that desire wants to go out into were virtually non-existent. There were no homes in the desert as they wandered. They hardly had any wealth. And certainly they didn't have prosperity. But it was a quite different manner in the promised land. Indeed, Moses' warning is more of a prophecy than it is a warning. The nation's desire did fall short of its divine aim because they expended it on earthly things. It stopped short on the way, and therefore, they forgot God. Their desire wasn't harnessed. And so it seems that our desire has to be harnessed, or rather managed, between those two aims. It's not inherently wrong to turn our desire upon earthly things, to enjoy these wonderful gifts that the Lord has given us, by no means. But it always must be kept in mind that earthly things may become snares that dull our pleasure in God. Now it's a simple proven fact that one cannot be full on earthly pleasure and take pleasure in divine things. Those two ends exist in a delicate balance. Now there are those spiritual masters who can strike that balance, but most cannot. It's a more tenuous proposition for us. And therefore, our action against earthly pleasure needs to be more decisive. The scale can tip very quickly in favor of earthly pleasure, such that we forget divine pleasure. We forget heavenly realities. And it requires from us a mindful and intent discipline. Right? We need to be shut off, ready to shut off um, the valve to earthly pleasures, if so needed, that our desires might rise toward their heavenly goal. And remember, it's moderation. That's the goal here. Harnessing our desire to point it toward its right end. Now, the Apostle Paul is our example. In Philippians chapter 3, he contrasts himself with those whom he calls enemies of the cross of Christ. 
And the distinction that he makes is between their desire and his desire. These enemies, he says, their God is their appetite. More literally, their God is their bellies. In other words, their ultimate allegiance lies with their sensual appetites, the gratification of their earthly desires. Now, Paul, as he presents himself, is their opposite. Not in the sense that they revel in pleasure and that his life is nothing but self-renunciation. It's not the case. He revels in pleasure, but it's a pleasure of a different kind. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. So the apostle is an example Not of desire that has been destroyed, but desire that's been sublimated toward a higher end. Jesus Christ. Certain things formerly that he counted as gain are rubbish now. He's moved beyond material pleasure to immaterial pleasure. uh, A desire that attains its end in heavenly things. And so that, church brothers and sisters, is our collective goal. That which we spur one another along toward. To see, not with sensual eyes, being merely lovers of earthly pleasure, but to see with the eyes of faith, seeking satisfaction in a higher pleasure, our Lord and His kingdom. And so together, let us count all things as lost, that we might gain that one necessary thing. And indeed, it seems like bereavement sometimes, and self-denial is hard, detaching our desires from earthly things, but in reality, it's not. Remember what our desire is meant for, God. He's the one thing that we truly desire. It's just that our desire is too untrained, and it's too blind to know that. And moreover, the only reason that we find anything desirable and take satisfaction in earthly things is because to one degree or another, they share in God's beauty and glory. We're detaching ourselves from the earthly signs to attach ourselves to the heavenly reality, the triune God. And so that leads us to our conclusion, uh, a practical note about how to begin or continue this journey. And I want to introduce a distinction that Augustine makes. In his classic On Christian Doctrine, he says, There are some things which are to be enjoyed, some which are to be used. Those which are to be enjoyed make us happy. Those which are to be used assist us and give us a boost, so to speak, as we press on toward our happiness, so that we may reach and hold fast to the things which make us happy. So, he makes a very basic distinction, right? I don't enjoy the spoon, no matter how exquisite. I use the spoon to bring me the thing which I enjoy. Now, there are indeed some strange beings who take delight in bowls and plates and cutlery. 
But normal ones use them. They're not properly meant as ends in themselves, but means. As Augustine says, they are used to assist us and to give us a boost as we press toward our happiness. And so our ultimate happiness and true blessedness in this age and the next is the triune God. As Augustine says, the true objects of enjoyment then are the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, who are at the same time the Trinity, one being supreme above all and common to all who enjoy Him. So, applying our distinction, it's God alone whom we must enjoy. Created things are to be used. One more time. It's God whom we're to enjoy. Created things are to be used. The earthly things to which our desires have attached themselves are not ends, but means. They are spoons, but not the thing that we actually enjoy. And so we've got the order mistaken. We ought to avoid a superficial understanding of Augustine's distinction I guess he didn't like the sermon. I don't know. It's in and out. Um, yeah, so we've got to make a distinction, or, or we've got to not interpret Augustine's words here uh, uh, superficially. right? There's something perverse in saying that we must use our neighbor to draw nearer to God. Very clearly doesn't mean using it in that manner. But instead, earthly things are to be used in the sense that our desires ought not to terminate in them, but to rise above them. So whatever it is that you might enjoy, that which your desire has led you to, ought to lead you to a more profound and higher enjoyment in God. Again, the reason we desire what we desire is because, in its creaturely manner, it resembles God. So, in created things, our Desire has not met its end. It's still on the way. Augustine says, if you settle down in that delight and remain in it, making it the end and sum of all your joy, then you can be said to enjoy you can be said to be enjoying it in a true and strict sense. So our point is our desire is not to settle down in created things. It's permitted to enjoy them, but only in passing as it continues its journey home to God. And it seems nature itself teaches us this as we enjoy fall. All things in this universe are subject to decay and change. Spring and summer soon give way to fall and winter. The flower blooms, but the wind passes over it, and it's no more. Human beauty and glory and power are here one moment and then gone the next. We cannot set our hearts on anything in this realm without eventually being disappointed and bereaved. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't set our hearts on them. It simply means, it simply rather teaches us to look for that which does not change and that which is not subject to corruption, a glory that's untainted and untouched in its primal beauty. Even nature itself teaches us to look to its creator. So earthly things 
rather than becoming a snare for our desires, objects that hinder us from reaching our goal, actually come to assist and give us a boost toward our desire's end. Any earthly thing and any enjoyment we find in it propels us toward a greater longing, a more sure hope in our heavenly enjoyment. Every desire directs us toward the end of our desire, and that is the triune God. So, as we turn our attention now toward the supper, it's clear that the lesson, these earthly elements, uh, bread and the cup, teach us. Our most basic desires as humans are hunger and thirst. Those are the things we need to survive. And those desires are met in the one who gives us his body for bread and his blood for drink. Our Lord Jesus is our true, true food and our true drink. And in him, the scripture says, we never hunger or thirst again. And so, as the music plays, take this time as a time of response. If need be, confess any wayward desires, admit them to the Lord, but more, impact, more importantly, ask that your desire would be redirected toward its proper aim in Jesus Christ. That we'd leave beyond earthly things and rise up toward our heavenly end. So let me say a quick prayer to lead you into yours and We'll go from there.